0: Welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi, joining you from Brussels, Belgium at the Friends of Europe studios. Friends of Europe is a prominent think tank in Brussels focusing on European policy as well as a global outlook on various issues that relate to Europe. My guest today is Eldar Mamadov. He's a senior foreign policy advisor to the Socialists and Democrats in the European Parliament, and he's joining me here in Brussels. Eldar, welcome to the Iran Podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Nega. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: It's a pleasure to talk to you. So, Eldar, first let's talk about your portfolio in the European Parliament, what you work on. I I know you're a senior Foreign policy advisor you do a lot of work on Iran and other countries in the region and beyond the Middle East Talk about your portfolio briefly and what you focus on including Iran policy.
1: Well, uh, I work for the first committee uh, advising my socialists and Democrats uh, group so it's uh, something akin to the staffers that you have uh, in the US Congress attached to one of the two political parties. We have more. So I work for the second largest uh, political bloc in the European Parliament, which is uh, Social Democrats, which is roughly like your Democratic Party. And my job consists in advising the members of the European Parliament uh, on policies and positions to take uh, with a particular focus on Iran and Persian Gulf countries. Uh, and Middle East uh, more broadly. Uh, So this is what I do. Uh, It involves, uh, including among other things, uh, drafting the resolutions of the European Parliament, uh, which are uh, the official means and ways uh, how the European Parliament expresses its political position on uh, different countries and processes unfolding in the region.
0: And Eldar, I know you focus a lot on Iranian politics and also on how Iran's foreign policy, regional policy impacts Europe, as well as Washington's policy towards Iran. I know you've been to Iran a number of times. Talk about your experience with Iran policy and how the European Parliament looks at that country.
1: Well, in all my trips uh, to Iran, and most of them were of professional nature, I've seen uh, quite a lively polity, which uh, doesn't correspond at all with uh, uh, an image uh, that sometimes many people in the West have of this uh, monolithic, harsh, austere Islamic uh, theocracy. Uh, The political field is much more lively and diverse than that. And essentially, um, what I understood in my trips is that uh, Iran uh, has politics, and that may sound uh, trivial, but uh, for many people uh, in the West it, indeed, uh, would come uh, as a discovery. It's not a system where one guy on the top, the supreme leader, decides on everything. It's a system uh, with uh, competing uh, political forces, each of them vying for advantage uh, at the expense uh, of the other. So essentially, it's uh, much more uh, helpful, I think, uh, uh, for understanding Iran to see its politics uh, much in the way we see it also in our countries. You have right wing, uh, you have left wing, uh, you have reformists, you have conservatives, and even if these terms are not quite uh, as defined in the Iranian context as they are in the European one, uh, they still exist, and I think that's, a lens and a frame through which uh, we have to um, uh, analyze and with which we have to approach the Iranian politics.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the competing um, political factions in Iran. As you're saying, it's not something that's understood very much in the West, more so in the US than in Europe, at least in Europe, you have politicians, diplomats who travel to the country. There's diplomatic presence by most European countries in Iran. The United States doesn't even have that. So um, it's more of this distance image of Iran. And speaking of these uh, competing political factions, we just saw... Um, The Iranian presidential election happened in June, and it's actually the change of administration. So it was the end of the second term of Hassan Rouhani, second and final term. And there's a new president, a hardliner, who's basically from the opposition um, side, opposite side of the political spectrum to Hassan Rouhani. And we we have started to see change, and we are going to see change in Iran's Um, political direction under this new hardline administration, which is going to look very different from the moderate years of Hassan Rouhani. Talk about your experience with these um, competing political factions in Iran. I know you've had encounters and engagements with the moderates as well as the hardliners and how you see the years ahead um, changing, especially in respect to Iran's policy towards the West. Europe as well as the United States. How you see that changing under the new hardline administration from your past experiences?
1: Well, I think what we what we've seen with the previous administration was indeed uh, a willingness and openness to engage with the West, uh, and uh, we saw it. We've seen it uh, with the conclusion of JCPOA. Uh, there were also talks about. Uh, regional engagement uh, there are a lot of uh, questions and a lot of um, uh, concerns about uh, uh, what we in the west uh, call iran's regional activities but uh, there was uh, certain willingness uh, from um, uh, Rouhani Zarif administration to engage on those talks as well obviously uh, the unfortunate experience with the JCPOA um, removed um, let's say political capital uh, from that uh, faction in uh, Iranian politics. And this is uh, something that uh, has been severely uh, underestimated in the West. Uh, As I said, uh, despite the expertise that we have and diplomatic presence uh, that we have on the ground, uh, the policy very much was uh, based on the assumption that uh, uh, the regime, is uh, monolithic. There is a supreme leader uh, who takes all the final decisions and he's a hardliner. So uh, I personally think that uh, we could and should have done more in Europe uh, to help the moderates and the reformist camp in Iran to supply them with the arguments of why engagement with the West is worthwhile. Uh, When it comes uh, to the hardliners, um, I think we should also not simplify uh, that camp. Uh, There are lots of shades uh, of the hardliners, and uh, uh, some of these hardliners, if you listen to them and if you analyze what they say, uh, they actually could be called Iranian uh, analogues of uh, realists, of uh, adherents and practitioners of realpolitik. Um, Basically, I do not see them, uh, uh, at least part of them, uh, opposed to any dealings with the West and even with the United States uh, based on on ideology. Uh, There is, of course, part of those who are ideologically opposed, uh, but it's not all of the hardliners who are ideologically opposed. There are those uh, who, at least my impression is that, uh, uh, who are ready to deal with the West, uh, but on their terms. And unfortunately, uh, the very painful experience with the Trump administration uh, gave them the reason. Uh, What we now see around uh, the nuclear file, the delays in negotiations, uh, actually it's not a sign of some irrational uh, obstinacy on the Iranian side. I think what it shows uh, is that Iranian calculus now is that dealing with the west and coming to jcpa has a did not lift uh, any sanctions in a meaningful way b uh, has removed uh, the nuclear program uh, that they in their way of thinking uh, see as a uh, leverage for iran so for them this is a lose-lose situation and i think ultimately uh, this is more uh, realpolitik kind of uh, analysis than purely ideological, which also means uh, that um, a solution or some kind of a commendation could probably also be found with this more uh, conservative hardline administration.
0: I agree with you and I think even for part of the hardline faction that ideology is one of the reasons it may not be the only so it's a combination Um, of their experience to what they perceive as the Western Bloc, the United States, its presence in the region, in some of the neighboring countries, decades of war and militarism, and also Europe's involvement in a lot of these policies. So I want to um, ask you, because you mentioned the experience of the JCPOA, and we saw the four years of the Trump administration the very harsh policies on Iran starting from discourse and um, rhetoric all the way to actual policies pulling out of the jcpoa imposing really harsh crippling sanctions on Iran I think this is the the harshest sanctions that's ever been sanctions regime that's ever been imposed on the country um now that's been combined with covid which is also a very, Uh, serious economic uh, strain on the country. There's also a lot of domestic mismanagement and corruption combined with all of these issues. So I want you to talk about the Trump years and how U.S. policy impacted what many of us saw in the JCPOA and in the Obama uh, policy as a new door that was opening for better engagement and better diplomacy and a peaceful resolution of issues with iran how did that the the years of trump and his policies on iran change that not only for u.s iran relations washington and tehran but also for europe as a whole as an extension of its closest ally which is the us
1: well what uh, trump's years uh, showed was unfortunately that um, the EU uh, is not uh, capable of throwing its weight uh, around in uh, international affairs uh, to the extent that uh, its uh, economic and demographic weight uh, would warrant. And that was a very crude awakening uh, for most Europeans Um, on political level As you will recall, uh, there were lots of statements uh, in support of JCPOA. There was even an attempt to establish a kind of trade mechanism, a special mechanism that would bypass uh, the American sanctions and uh, allow for legitimate trade with Iran called INSTEX. Uh, Nothing came out of it. So the political will was there. I would not agree with those who claim that Europe uh, from the beginning was uh, in agreement with uh, Trump's action and just tried sort of disguise uh, uh, <coughs> that situation with some rhetoric. That's very far from, uh, from truth. And also the fact that uh, the EU members, uh, European members of the UN Security Council, uh, they blocked uh, the snapback, uh, which the Trump administration uh, tried to impose uh, also proves that point.
0: Towards However, the end of the Trump administration. Yes,
1: but but it was consistent also with the positions that have been uh, taken uh, throughout that period. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is that uh, the capacities uh, of the European Union uh, have proved to be inadequate in shielding Uh, and reassuring the European businesses uh, in doing business uh, in Iran. And that, again, partially uh, is uh, due to dollars and the US financial uh, system's uh, predominant position in the world markets. Uh, Also, partly, the governments probably could have done more in informing European businesses uh, about the legal framework of operating in Iran. There was uh, a lot of confusion as far as the sanctions were concerned. The US sanctions, unilateral extraterritorial US sanctions, uh, were often confused uh, with the UN sanctions, which are of uh, obligatory compliance uh, to all uh, member states of the UN. So there was a lot of confusion on this one. So a lot of businessmen, uh, business people, mistook U.S. sanctions uh, for, uh, for universal ones. And the governments uh, probably uh, could have done more in explaining the intricacies and the complexities of this framework. But it's also true that uh, for many firms, especially big ones, uh, when they are faced with the choice, uh, do business in U.S. or in Iran, uh, the decision is pretty clear. So I think uh, it's a mixture of, uh, of factors here at play. Uh, the political will uh, to preserve uh, JCP, JCPLA was there, uh, but uh, the real capacity uh, to uh, make that agreement meaningful, to deliver meaningful sanctions relief uh, to Iran uh, uh, was not there
0: um, At some point I think uh, I remember The deputy foreign minister in Iran Arash, Was saying that Europe has come out strong But essentially What they're doing Is statement therapy Because the Europeans Were coming out With these very strong Political statements Going against Their closest allies Which is the United States um, But then As you're explaining In reality The economic benefits Were what Iran wanted as far as their end of the deal. They agreed to limit their nuclear program in exchange for economic benefits. And I think the moderate faction in Iran, when the Trump years started and there was all this talk of the U.S. pulling out of the uh, nuclear deal, the moderates were relying a lot on this um, support from the Europe they were assuring that the Europeans would stick to the end of the deal that you know economic trade can continue they don't need the US because there's not much trade between Iran and the US anyways and it's mostly with Europe and um, they're going to abide by the deal and the Europeans to be fair to the Europeans First of all, they were very instrumental in making the deal happen, in basically providing all the logistics, literally the location, and also coordinating all the parties, the European Union especially, um, as well as the three European parties, and then also in keeping the deal alive during the Trump years. Um, But we know the deal is on life support. It's alive, but it's on life support. And I want to talk about the new administration in Washington pivoting from the Trump years. Joe Biden has been in the White House since January. Many of us expected uh, an easy and a fast return to the JCPOA. It was one of the promises of his uh, campaign. Uh, His vice president was of the same view. Some of his senior um, political staff were, were criticizing Trump's policy of pulling out of the JCPOA during the Trump year, saying this is the best deal available, and we should, the U.S. should abide by it. So what is your assessment? I know it's still too early to assess the Biden administration, but there was a short window of opportunity of Joe Biden and Hassan Rouhani's administrations basically overlapping, and that window is now closed. So the Biden administration is has to deal with the hard line in Iran. What is your assessment of these first six, seven months of the Biden administration, and their outlook and policy towards Iran and how that impacted Iranian politics at all if you think.
1: Well, I think what the experience of Biden's inspiration shows is that the <clears throat> enmity to Iran is so deeply ingrained, uh, is so institutionalized in the American system uh, that it is uh, probably easier for him, uh, despite uh, all the criticism that's heaped on him right now, it's easier for him to withdraw troops to Afga- from Afghanistan, and, uh, uh, which leads uh, to, to a Taliban takeover, uh, than uh, to come back uh, to the agreement uh, with Iran so
0: to an agreement which was made by the Obama Biden exactly. administration even more
1: so that that only reinforces my point so the, the 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 scale and the entrenchment of the of the institutional enmity uh, to to Iran uh, seems to be uh, quite overwhelming in the American system that's what I see and I also uh, perceive that uh, uh, the administration, um, was uh, to some extent under the influence of the school of thought that uh, there was no need to rush uh, to to negotiations with Iran because Iran was uh, anyway in a weak position, and therefore the sanctions that were imposed uh, by Trump could be used as a leverage to extract uh, more concessions uh, from Iran, not only on the nuclear issue, but also on ballistic missiles, on regional policies and so on and so forth, and this uh, despite the fact that uh, Iranian officials, those who really wanted that deal to to be resuscitated, um, uh, were warning clearly about the changing political mood in Tehran, and actually you didn't even need to listen from them uh, to see that on your own. The parliamentary elections in 2019.
0: The parliament was in 2020.
1: They they, they already were uh, quite a strong signal of where the wind is blowing. And I remember that uh, Jawad Zarif uh, spoke here at the European Policy Center, it was mid-March, uh, and his warning was uh, pretty explicit, pretty, pretty extraordinary. He clearly said that uh, uh, the change uh, of administration in Iran would complicate talks. He did not say necessarily that uh, it would uh, kill them for good, but uh, the warning was there, and somehow uh, these warnings were not heated, uh as they should have been, uh, neither in the US nor in the EU, I'm afraid, EU member states especially. So it was uh, mostly seen as a uh, uh, some kind of blackmail or some kind of political game uh, by the reformist faction. Uh, but I think it was a big mistake not to take those warnings at face value. And here I also have a word of criticism uh, to European members of the, of the JCPOA. Uh, since the beginning...
0: France, Germany, and And the UK.
1: Yeah, which is not EU anymore, but still European uh, country. So uh, they should have uh, lobbied, in my view, the Biden inspiration from day one uh, to rejoin the agreement. The agreement which uh, they themselves, uh, as we just discussed, have been defending throughout Trump's years. So instead, uh, they also uh, seem to believe uh, that Iran was uh, too weakened, basically had nowhere to go, Uh, and uh, will just crawl back uh, to negotiations and accept any deal that will be uh, offered. Uh, And to use the Trump sanctions as as a leverage uh, to extract concessions on those uh, other areas. So it was uh, a strategic mistake, Uh, uh, time was wasted, and uh, from the European perspective, even though, it's obvious that uh, ultimately it's down to Washington and and Tehran. Uh, From European perspective, uh, we definitely did not do all we could have done. And uh, at some points, uh, as Europeans, we were just outright unhelpful when, uh, for example, there was an attempt uh, to uh, table a censure resolution at the Board of Governors of the International Atomic Energy Agency, which now uh, again is being discussed, but that was uh, back in uh, March, I think. Uh, And uh, uh, then it was the U.S. that uh, basically said that, no, let's give diplomacy a chance. But it's important to remember it was mostly Britain and France who were pushing for it, and now they're pushing again.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned the UK and France, because I remember during the JCPOA negotiations in Vienna, which I was also covering, there was usually this last minute push from a more strict side by France. And I feel like there's a little bit of that deja vu that now that the administration in Washington has changed and the Europeans are sort of confident that Washington wants diplomacy, there's no more... Trump and not a serious threat of war or military Conflict that they maybe take a tougher stance on this Iran issue. What is your assessment? Why would uh, they try to create these hurdles? Um, once the Biden administration comes in
1: well, I think what's uh, what's going on here is that uh both UK and France, uh, they very, they made it very clear that their priority in the area, in the in the region, are relations with uh, Persian Gulf monarchies, such as Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, uh, first of all. Uh, why is that? Obviously, uh, <clears throat> arms sales is uh, a big part of it. And uh, now with um, uh, what is seen, and perhaps overinterpreted as US disengagement from the region, uh, the perception was uh, exacerbated by uh, American withdrawal from Afghanistan. So uh, this is uh, interpreted in some circles in, in Europe, in London and Paris, uh, as a sign uh, that um, a kind of void is being uh, created uh, in the region. And that uh, it follows from that that uh, UK and France uh, have to fill it in uh, and throw their uh, strategic and diplomatic weight uh, behind uh, those Persian Gulf monarchies that I mentioned. So um, this is, uh, therefore, uh, this tougher line on Iran is uh, partly, uh, I think, a message uh, to those countries, a message to their allies in the Middle East and Persian Gulf uh, that they are squarely behind them and that they share their uh, overall uh, diplomatic and strategic view in the region. Uh, It also, of course, has an important um, trade and business component, uh, including arms sales, uh, just as I mentioned, Uh, but it also indeed um, signals um, the um, willingness of these countries to play a kind of more muscular, uh, tougher, hard power role uh, in the region. So to what extent they will be successful and to what extent uh, their real weight uh, as opposed to to the desired one uh, will uh, Justify those ambitions, uh, of course, is to be seen. uh, But those ambitions are definitely there. And I think that's uh, the main reason which explains uh, their sort of tougher posturing towards Iran.
0: I'm glad you mentioned some of the Arab countries of the Persian Gulf, Saudi Arabia, UAE, close U.S. allies, and then there's also Israel. So these U.S. allies in the region were very much and vocally opposed to the JCPOA during the Obama years. Former Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu publicly tried to sabotage it with his famous speech in Congress, a lot of lobbying behind the scenes. Nevertheless, they couldn't stop the JCPOA from happening during the Obama years. In the Trump years, they had more pull in the White House, and also Trump policy towards Iran was very much in line with what these countries wanted. Now there's a new administration, the Biden administration, which has a different outlook, not just on Iran and not just on U.S. allies in the region, but also towards the Middle East in general. They're going back more to the Obama um, vision of disengaging the United States, especially militarily, from the region. There's also a new government in Israel, so there's some kind of change happening there. How do you see all of this, the changes in the region, especially in Israel among other US allies, this change of administration in Washington affecting Iran and Europe diplomacy, basically this engagement with uh, bringing all of these um, countries into factor?
1: Well, I think when it comes uh, specifically to Israel, uh, there is um, very special sensitivity towards that question in Europe. And uh, I know that um, uh, our Iranian friends sometimes uh, quite simplistically uh, uh, dismiss it as merely some kind of uh, uh, lobby activity that is directed against them. Uh, Definitely there is this part as well. Uh, As far as Iran is concerned, Uh, and I spoke about that with uh, Iranian counterparts, Um, they, in my opinion, would be wise not to give uh, too much fodder to those forces uh, in Israel and the United States and Europe who would like to isolate Iran. And sometimes the rhetoric that we hear from Tehran about uh, Israel uh, needing to be wiped out uh, from earth, so, whatever are the nuances in translation, I know that sometimes what is really said is not really what is conveyed and translated. Uh, but this kind of rhetoric, even when it comes close to it, uh, is massively counterproductive uh, for Iran uh, from the point of view of public perceptions in Europe. Because we, we have to remember this is a continent that has a very painful history. And those statements, uh, they have strong reminiscences with uh, with European history. That's why uh, the political class, um, most of it uh, intellectual class, media, and so on, uh, that's why uh, there's a heightened sensitivity to, to this kind of rhetoric, which of course is not to excuse what the Israeli government is doing and the way it's treating the. Uh, Palestinians, uh, its regional adventurism, so uh, especially under the Netanyahu government. Another element uh, of high concern uh, for European liberals uh, was uh, uh, the strong ties, close ties uh, of Netanyahu government with uh, uh, some of the far-right and even anti-Semitic forces in Europe which are committed to undermining uh, the European Union from within Uh, by undermining its democratic institutions and uh, tolerance. So, um, that was indeed uh, a high concern for, for, let's say, mainstream and centrist European uh, politicians. But now, uh, indeed, there is a change of government in Israel, as you said. Uh, I do not think that uh, this has led to some uh, Fundamental reappraisal of Israeli uh, policy uh, towards Iran, uh, and we've seen also the Prime Minister Bennett's visit to Washington, and uh, when the Biden said that if we don't get back to JCPOA, then other options uh, on the table. So uh, this all is still very concerning, and it's 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 only. Um, Reaffirms once again the urgency of uh, coming back to JCPOA and uh, generally moving towards the escalation of tensions.
0: I know you're a strong proponent of diplomacy of the JCPOA, as you're saying, the um, escalation and opposed to military intervention in conflict. Let's talk about the impacts and, and the effectiveness, if at all, of this policy, some call it crippling sanctions, the Trump administration called it maximum pressure, some in Washington are calling it leverage, as you're saying, even with the new administration, imposing this crippling economic pressure on Iran, which we know through research that's mostly put on the population, on the Iranian people, civilians, vulnerable parts of the society, um, expecting concessions from the government, policy changes that we didn't really see. The Trump administration was successful in imposing this economic pain on Iran. It was very successful in bring, um, bringing the Iranian economy down, but we didn't see any of the policy goals um, that were expected by that administration happening through this pressure, what do you think uh, has been the result of years of sanctions and pressure, sometimes with the Europeans on board, sometimes without them on board, but actually not much helping in uh, reducing the economic pressure um, on the population? Because and I also want to bring in this um, issue of Afghanistan, as you correctly mentioned, now. Um, Iran is dealing with a high number of Afghan refugees. And we know it's documented that sanctions also put a lot of constraints on the country, as well as the population and the refugees, and even the international organizations who do work with the refugees. All of these um, are sort of a big picture that matter for Europe um, as a matter of policy and also as a matter of uh, their own uh, internal uh, domestic politics. Talk about what you think has been the result of these years of sort of sanctions and um, escalatory tough policies towards Iran.
1: Well, I will divide my answer into parts, if you don't mind. First on sanctions, and then you brought in Afghanistan very appropriately so. But when it comes to the effects of sanctions, I think there is... Uh, one uh, fundamental error of judgment uh, that you can see in many Western think tanks uh, and um, uh, media analysis uh, when it comes to assessing the sanctions. So when you say that sanctions uh, have an effect and when think think tanks and media say so and uh, so on, uh, it's true, they do have an effect on the population, but uh, Did they manage, did they achieve any substantial change uh, in Iranian foreign policy? The answer is flat no. And to the extent that political changes uh, have been um, uh, fostered by uh, by these sanctions, they're all negative. They all uh, run counter uh, to the uh, supposed aims uh, of those sanctions. So do we see Iran becoming more, uh, accommodationist and becoming more uh, flexible negotiations? No, we see the contrary. Do we see the moderate uh, pro-engagement forces in Iran rising? No, we see the opposite. We, we see the more hardline forces uh, becoming more powerful. So uh, the results of this carpet sanctions, the wide-ranging economic sanctions, uh, are uh, that they cause inhumane uh, costs on the population, or the more so in the context of COVID-19. But politically, they do not only do not achieve the desired change, uh, but they militate actively against the change by empowering those forces, those very forces, that supposedly were targeting in Iran with these sanctions. So it's been a causal failure from all points of view, whichever way you look at it. And it severely undermined um, the moderates and those in Iran who uh, pursued the passive engagement with the, with the West. Now, um, switching to the second part of the question on Afghanistan. Um, I myself uh, been, uh, during one of my trips uh, near Isfahan, uh, I think it was in 2017, uh, we visited uh, the, the school where... Uh, afghan children children of afghan uh, refugees are taught and it's often underappreciated to what extent the iranian government uh, made efforts uh, to integrate those people and we're talking uh, about quite big numbers uh, i think there are uh, at the minimum some three million uh, afghan refugees both officially registered and non-registered in iran for the population of what 80 million And in the EU collectively we have 5 million people. And uh, the question of uh, a few hundred thousands of uh, Syrian or now Afghan refugees uh, is uh, making a big fuss and poisoning the political atmosphere uh, in the country. So it's important to put things in perspective. And uh, now, that we expect uh, more Afghan refugees uh, to come to Iran. Uh, This is where the EU and Iran uh, have a clear common interest uh, to make sure that uh, those people are uh, well taken care of uh, and integrated. And uh, by the way, the European Commission has come with an announcement uh, recently a few weeks ago, about uh, its intention uh, to engage more deeply with Iran on Afghanistan. And uh, that includes also uh, augmenting the financial resources uh, to Iran to help deal with the situation. So I hope it's going to be done directly with the Iranian government. Uh, it could also be done through UN organizations uh, or through NGOs on the ground. Uh, so The main thing is that uh, the Afghan refugees are helped, but I also think that it offers a channel uh, how the EU and how the Iranian government, particularly given that it's a new government and uh, trust has to be built, but this is one channel uh, where they uh, could um, talk with each other and hopefully build some trust uh, and build a
0: relationship. Mm And, Elder, finally, I want to ask you about your travels to Iran. Um, I know you've traveled there a number of times, mostly for work. You've seen Tehran, some other cities. Talk about uh, your personal side of this story, how you saw the country, the people, which cities did you visit, what is your favorite place, what was your favorite food, and how was your overall experience um, visiting the country?
1: Well, I won't say I won't precisely break any ground by saying that it's a fascinating country. I really do feel it uh, with extremely friendly, uh, hospitable people. Uh, I never felt uh, in any way threatened or somehow uh, disturbed uh, during my trips, uh, particularly private trips. When you go on official trips, of course, uh, it's always more stressful uh, because of the many rules And restrictions. Uh, Well, official trips are stressful um, in any context, uh, whichever country you're talking about. But of course, in Iran, with um, this particular security situation and security concerns, and uh, this sensitive, uh, permanently sensitive, uh, as I would say, juncture at which we are in relations with Iran, of course. it also leaves its imprimatur on how uh, Iranians interact uh, with incoming delegations, uh, particularly from uh, from the West. Uh, but otherwise, uh, indeed, uh, there are so many uh, fascinating sides of Iranian culture, like music. I enjoy Iranian music very much. Then... Going to traditional tea houses is, 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 a, is a whole experience, uh, mountains around Tehran. Um, I actually also quite like visiting uh, Shrines. Uh, these are the places uh, where you really can wander around completely undisturbed uh, and uh, contrary to that uh, image of oppressive Islam uh, that uh, Sometimes is uh, propagated in the media. Um, you actually don't feel that uh, when you're in Iran. Of course, I'm a man, and for a woman, it could be different, I, I, I concede that. Uh, but since you're asking about my <laughs> personal experiences, sure. then uh, then I'm sharing my experiences. And when it comes uh, to the places, uh, I've been, obviously, many times in Tehran, uh, also in Isfahan and Qom, in uh, Kashan in Tabriz, Ardebil, Shiraz, all of those are wonderful places. Uh, Isfahan, probably aesthetically and culturally uh, the richest one. But I also like Tehran uh, with its uh, drive, with its mad uh, uh, traffic, uh, with its cafes, uh, arts galleries. There's a quite lively scene there. Uh, Also, uh, a number of churches uh, that that are open and that uh, uh, operate in Iran uh, completely undisturbed. For example, there's this uh, Armenian cathedral at the center of Tehran, uh, which uh, operates uh, with uh, total normality. And yet when you compare it with uh, neighboring countries, with other countries in the region, uh, uh, you don't see that necessarily. And of course, the synagogues as well. We visited the uh, synagogue in uh, Isfahan. So, yeah, and then in Qom of course, uh, it was also uh, quite interesting to visit the University of Religions and then uh, being taken to the library in qom which is supposedly the center of uh, religious orthodoxy. Uh, but you find there the books uh, on sexuality, uh, on liberalism, the works of uh, John Locke, uh, then the the treaties on Japanese sexuality, (laughs) just as an example. Uh, You have uh, Bibles there, Uh, you have uh, works on Christianity, on on Judaism. So uh, it's a country that can surprise you uh, in many ways. Uh, It's uh, much more diverse, uh, much more lively um, uh, country that um, we often perceive in the the West. Uh, So in this sense, it was uh, uh, massively uh, rewarding uh, to be able to to visit it and to know it.
0: And what was your favorite food?
1: Well, (laughs) I think there is... uh, not much competition uh, to be made to uh, kubide kebab. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Well, on that note, Eldar, it's also raining here in Brussels. Again, we're at the studios of the Friends of Europe, a prominent think tank based here in Belgium. And I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast.
1: Thank you, Negar. It was a real pleasure for me.
0: That was Eldar Mamadov, a senior foreign policy advisor to the socialists and Democrats in the European Parliament. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support us by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran Podcast. Until next time, Goodbye.